I thought we'd have no one show up to hear about assurance, but no, it's a big, <laughs> big topic. Oh, well, great to be here, and even uh, even though we're missing our families and our kids around, um, hi to you guys out there, and um, yeah, really really good to be able to hit pause in our in our series. As as you know, we've been working through John. I've been really enjoying it. And last week, uh, I pretty early on, it was actually the week before, when I hit that, that chunk in, uh, in John 10 as we were working through Jesus revealing himself as the Good Shepherd, the, on, the Good Shepherd, the only truly Good Shepherd. Uh, and, and we hit that chunk in verse 27, 28, and it, and it really, I guess, gave, gave me pause uh, where Jesus, in response to the Pharisees, they're not listening they don't want to believe in him. They're not interested in following him. And Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Now, when I hit that passage, I think I realized, ah, uh, I don't think we can just deal this within the context of that John 10 sermon. This is, this is a bigger topic. Um, this marvellous verse relates to this topic of assurance of salvation. And this is a topic that I reckon every person has uh, from any religion uh, or faith, uh, even from the Christian faith, I reckon everyone has wrestled with this at some point with or another. Uh, this, this question of how can we be sure that we are saved? That's, that's connected to that assurance word. How can we be sure? Are we, are we given an assurance that we are truly saved? And, and what about feeling sure that we're saved? Because I think they're two different things. Um, so, so we're going to think about that today. Can we have assurance? Can we feel assurance? Uh, what does it mean if I'm not feeling assurance? Is that a, a sign for something? And that's the wrestle we want to have today. Uh, and I'll say now we're not going to answer all the questions. No way. We will have a question time at the end. Um, so if, if you're watching at home, uh, please text in those questions to the number that you'll see on the screen from time to time. If you're here, you can ask those. Uh, even then, no guarantee I'll be able to answer them all, but you will get to ask them and we'll see how we go. Um, but today, I, I guess we want to sketch the basic outline about what the Bible says about this topic. We're not going to get down into all the detail. Um, and as usual, we will be looking at the Bible. Um, and... Uh, and it's especially important as we look at this topic uh, that we know what question we're asking as we come to the Bible. And I want to just point out what question we're not asking. We're not asking, uh, what am I okay with? We're not asking, what can I accept? Uh, we, we're asking fundamentally, what does the Bible teach us? They're very different things. To say, well, what, what am I happy with? What can I accept? What am I okay with? Is a very different question to saying, well, what does the Bible teach about this? Uh, and only then can you wrestle with, well, how do I feel about that? But the first question, the one we're interested in, is what does God's Word teach? Uh, and so we will be scooting through a whole bunch of Bible verses today, um, and we won't have time to see the context of each reference. That's one of the reasons we preach through books and we do reasonably big chunks of the Bible as we go through it, is because I, I want everyone else to see that what we're saying, it's not some verse taken out of context. Uh, but today we'll be scooting through, we'll have a lot of references. Um, so if you're uh, exploring Christianity or you're not terribly familiar with the Bible, or even if you are really familiar with the Bible, I'd encourage you to go back through uh, this sermon and, and pause. That's one of the advantages of them being filmed. Pause at each reference and, and look it up, have a read. Oh, is, 
has Liam taken that verse out of context? Now, I'll say I haven't, but I want, I want you to be sure. Have a look at the passage. Read the story around it um, so that you can be sure. Um, so I'm going to pray again because that's what we really need here. Father God, uh, as I speak now and as we together prepare to hear your words, uh, please open our hearts. Please open our hearts to hear what you are saying to us. Please help us to be shaped uh, by you. Uh, don't, don't let us shape uh, your word around what we think is right or we think it should be. But please, as, as you speak to us through your word, shape us uh, according to your will. Um, we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we come to assurance about being sure of our salvation, we need to ask and answer some preliminary questions. And the big question we'll be asking in this first chunk is, who does our salvation ultimately depend on? Who does our salvation ultimately depend on? Uh, is it ultimately dependent on, um, on me and my faith, uh, whether, whether I choose to be in or out, uh, or does it depend on God? Um, so in this first talk, uh, we're going to work through the four questions, and I think that's going to sketch it out for us. Um, first question we'll ask and hopefully answer is, how bad are we, us people, us humans? Uh, then we'll ask, what brings us to repentance? Uh, then we'll ask, why me? If, and that's, a, that's a, if you're a Christian, well, why am I a Christian and, and not, my, not my friend, not my family? Why me? And fourth, where can I put my trust? So that's where we're going to work through in this first little chunk. And first of all, um, how bad are we? Now, that's, uh, that's the, uh, and the, uh, and I'll give you the answer that I think the Bible gives, uh, and then we'll run through those Bible verses, and hopefully you'll see that the answer that, that uh, I, I give is, is hopefully in line with what the Bible says. Um, so the first, the answer is, uh, how bad are we? Answer, we are too bad to choose God. We are so bad that we will not choose God on our own. Uh, we'll see that there's, uh, there's, not enough, um, there's not enough good in us to choose what is right. So, saying that same thing, but in, in the, the positive, what we lack. I, I think sometimes we feel, oh, you know, we do have a kernel of good in us. And you say, well, there's actually not enough good in us uh, to choose what is right. Uh, we'll see the Bible that says, we're, how bad are we? Well, we're, we're in slavery to sin. We're not dabbling in sin. We're not indulging in sin. We're in slavery to sin. And we'll see the Bible describe us as being dead in our sins. Uh, and, and I guess in theology speaks, so theology is uh, a word for the study of God. You know, theos, the study of God. In theology, this, this would be called, this idea of how bad are we, would be called total depravity. Uh, and that's, I, I think it's really helpful uh, because it's saying, depravity is another word for depraved. So you might say corrupt or tainted. So you say, well, well how, um, how corrupt are we? How tainted are we? Well, we're, we're totally. There, there, there is no part of us that hasn't been corrupt uh, by our sin. Um, so that's, that's, that's the answer I think we find in the Bible. Uh, and now we'll just flick on through the Bible and, and hopefully you'll see this is true. Uh, Romans 3, Paul writes, uh, what shall we conclude then? Uh, have we, do we have any advantage? Um, so he's talking uh, to the Jews and about Jews now. He's saying, us Jews, do we have any advantage over those people who didn't come from the Jewish heritage? He says, not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. 
As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And that's one of the big messages of the Bible. There's a few big messages that are stitched through the Bible. But I'd encourage you to just flip through from Genesis and think, let's have a look at the heroes of the Bible or the human characters of the Bible. How, how good was Adam? Let's start off. Adam and Eve. How good were they? They, they had one rule. You know, there's this whole paradise to enjoy. And there wasn't enough good in them to choose what is right. And they mucked it up. They, they chose what is wrong, not what is right. Uh, flick forward to Noah. Hey, he's a bit of a hero. He's the one guy in the whole world who stood firm, who loved God. But do you remember what he did when he got off the ark? The first thing the Bible records, well, he, he makes a sacrifice, which is good. He says, thank you to God for saving him. Good on you, Noah. Then he plants a vineyard and gets drunk That's, and, and exposes himself to his family. Now, it, it's, it's not a flattering position we find Noah in, in the first account. after he's, he's, he's flawed. Even this good guy is so flawed. Um, Abraham, well, he was a good guy. Uh, we were doing in our children's story Bible uh, last term. We were working through it. One of the, the stories was reminding the kids about Abraham, this father of the faith. Well, do you remember that not once, not twice, but three times he lied about his wife being his sister? He, he just couldn't learn his lesson. And, and it's a bit ambiguous, but it looks like she was taken by a king. Now, we, we don't know what that means, but it's, it's, it's not good. And he lied about it. He, he wouldn't trust God enough to protect him because he thought, oh, they'll kill me for my wife, so I'll tell them that she's my sister. He, he's flawed. What about Moses? Well, he was a good guy. No, he was so bad that he disqualified himself from entering the promised land. He, he took credit for the water out of the rock. He got angry. He disobeyed God. And that was such a failure that God said, you don't, you don't actually get to enter the promised land. Or the judges, the heroes, Samson, a bit of a hero for a, as you, if you're growing up, you know the story of Samson. Well, he was a drunkard and a womanizer, a horrible, he's not a hero. Uh, none of them are. What about David, the man after God's own heart? Well, he sees a beautiful woman and he takes her. Even though he can have the pick of anyone who's not married, he arranges for her husband to be slaughtered in battle. So to cover up his adultery with her. Uh, that's one of the big stories the Bible flicked through. You're going to find the big story is us humans, we're not good. We don't choose what is right. And given the opportunity, we will reject God. Uh, even the Apostle Paul, one of the great men of faith in the New Testament, Paul's personal testimony from Romans 8.18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That's Paul. You know, this church planter extraordinaire, this great man of faith. Uh, we can't please God. Paul describes it earlier on in chapter 8. He says, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of flesh cannot please God. That's us. In our bodies and ourselves, we can't please God. Um, in John, uh, Jesus describes uh, us like this. I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins, who's that? All of us, is a slave to sin. Not dabbling in it, not enamored by it, we're enslaved to it. Ephesians 2, Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. 
you were dead. Uh, but the spirit who is now at work in those who are, who are disobedient, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So not just slaves to sin, dead in our sin. So we're dead slaves, not free to choose what is good. Uh, and that's explained uh, in numerous places, but in Ezekiel uh, 36 is part of a promise about what God is going to do. He identifies the real problem. The problem is we have a heart of stone. We, we don't have the capacity in our heart, in our will. We don't have the capacity to do what is right, to do what is truly spiritual and good. Uh, and Jesus backs that up. He says it in John 6. We saw it a couple of weeks ago. John 6, 44. Uh, where are we? Uh, no one can come to me, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I'll raise them up on the last day. <clears throat> there's, a, there's an Ill inability there. There, there. There's something in us that means we cannot come to God. We're, we're just too bad. And because of the answer to that first question, you know, how bad are we? Well, we're, we're, we're totally bad. We're totally bad. We, we, we don't have enough good in us to choose what is right. Uh, because of that, when God, God offers grace to all people, so grace is that, that word for undeserved generosity. So when God, when God holds out salvation in Jesus to people, because we're totally bad, we resist. There is not enough good in us to choose God. There's not enough good in us to say, yeah, that, that seems like a good offer. I'll trust you. There's not enough good in us to repent, to accept his offer of salvation. Uh, and and that, that leads us into our second question. Well, what then brings us to repentance? If we are dead, if we are slaves, if we have hearts of stone, what then brings us to repentance? Uh, and the answer is irresistible grace. Another way of saying it would be overwhelming grace. I want to point out, this, this isn't just attractive grace. So there, there, there's some things that are attractive, uh, like, I don't know, someone puts out a pack of Tim Tams, and you go, well, that, that's pretty attractive. You might even say it's irresistible, but it's not, is it? it it's not, it is resistible. It's attractive, might be really hard to resist, but it's not irresistible. It's not a compulsion. See, we're, we're too bad to respond to something as attractive. We're too bad to see that God's grace is beautiful and good and proper. Left to ourselves, we, we, we won't respond to attractive grace. We need God to do something. We need God to completely overwhelm our broken, sinful hearts. We need God to give us, as he, as he tells Nicodemus, new birth. Because you're dead and, and you need to be alive. You, you need new birth. Uh, we need to be freed from slavery. We, we can't respond. We're in bondage. A slave who wants to be free, well, that, that, good on you. You can't. You're a slave. You need someone to come in and free you from bondage. So we need to, God to do that thing in us, something that we can't resist. Now, you might be thinking, well, of course we can resist grace. You know, uh, God's undeserved, generous offer to people. Of course we can resist grace. I see people resisting God's offer all the time. Of course we can resist. And even in Acts, we sort of see that. Uh, Acts 7.51, Stephen's preaching to the Jews on the streets of Jerusalem. And, and as part of his 
his sermon that ultimately gets him killed, he says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, you are just like your ancestors, you have always resist the Holy Spirit. So we say, oh, of, course, of course people can resist God. Uh, but this is resisting God's general grace, his gracious offer to all people. I, I think we see it pragmatically, first of all. Um, I've met very few Christians who want to take credit for their conversion. I, I've met very few Christians who say, yeah, that was me. I was smart enough. I found God through my effort and my choice because in some way I had something in me that was better than those people who didn't choose God. I, I've met very, very few Christians who would say that. We say something else. We don't say, I figured it out. We say that, that something happened. Something happened. God did something in me. God found me, not I found God. See, there comes a point where God chooses an individual and overwhelms them with his grace. Uh, he takes it from an attractive offer to an irresistible offer. Have a look. Um, John six thirty-seven. Jesus says, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. Earlier on in John, he said, no one can come to the Father unless we draw them. And here he says, no, no, all those the Father gives me will come to me. Not the Father's given to me and they might come because they get to choose. No, no, no. All who come, is given, will come. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, Paul writes, uh, and this is the context of uh, opponents of having someone else in the teaching a different gospel. Paul's instructing Timothy and he says, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they'll come to their sentences and escape from the trap of the devil who's given them, has taken them captive to do his will. Now, that gives us an insight into what Paul has had revealed to him about the way human will works, about the way repentance works. Repentance is something that needs to be granted to you. We are so totally bad that we will not repent. We will not turn away from trusting ourselves to trusting Jesus. We won't turn away from finding pleasure and satisfaction in the things of this world to finding pleasure and satisfaction in Jesus. We won't repent and turn to him unless God grants it, unless God gives it. And that's something God might do. Now, at this point, we need to pause and I need to note that God doesn't draw people to himself against his will, against our will. So I think sometimes when you hear this, you think, oh, did, it, that, that feels wrong. It feels like, you know, you've got someone by the back of their collar and they're kicking and screaming. God's saying, nah, you're, you're coming with me. That's not the way the Bible describes this working. Uh, instead, the way God draws us is he actively changes our hearts. He changes our will. So we, we don't get dragged against our will, but he changes our will so that we will come willingly. Acts 16, 14, uh, there's been some evangelism uh, in uh uh, in Acts and Paul's preaching and Acts 16 we have a woman called Lydia so one of those listening uh, was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia uh, a dealer in purple cloth she was a worshipper of God uh, so it looks like she's a Gentile she's not a Jewish lady uh, she she wants to know God in some in some way but look how her conversion is described 
the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Her heart was closed. She couldn't respond to Paul's message. And the Lord opened it. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And, when she, and then it goes straight to 15, when she and the members of her household were baptised, she was invited into her home. So when God opens someone's heart, that, that, that's it. They're open. They respond because that's what God does. See, deep down, I think all Christians will recognise this, and, and that's why we pray. I don't know a Christian who does not pray for their unbelieving friends and family. Now, why do we do that? Why do we pray to God? We're not praying to, we're not praying to our family, I hope. Uh, we're praying to God for those who don't yet know Jesus, by name in particular. What, what are we praying? Why are we doing that? See, if we believe that God had just generally offered his grace to everyone, he's already done that through Jesus. It's a general offer to everyone. They've heard the message. Well, what are we praying that God will do? Because that general grace has been offered. What are we actually praying God will do? Uh, we wouldn't waste time praying if we didn't expect God to do something special and particular in that person. We'd say, thank you for offering your grace to everyone. But we go beyond that, don't we? We say, please, I don't know what words you use, but please do something in my family, in my friend, in that, that person. Do something. In the, well, what, are we, what are we asking? We're asking to do something particular in a particular person. And that resonates as right and true because it's what we find in the words of Scripture. See, what God has done and what Christians, I think, deep down have experienced and practice in prayer is that God has given his irresistible grace to someone, to us. He's made it so that we, we have to come to him. Uh, we're overwhelmed, overwhelmed by what he's done. And that then will naturally lead to the next question, the why me question. And this is if, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're actively following Jesus, you, you will naturally say, well, why? Why me? Why was I overwhelmed by God's grace? Why did God open my heart? Why did God make his grace to me irresistible and, and not to others? And it only follows that as, as it's taught in the Bible, that when God holds out his grace to all, his general grace to all, he chooses particular individuals to completely overwhelm. A choosing of particular individuals. Uh, the Bible says that God predestines or elects them. Now, they're, they're, they're Bible words. They're not words that I or anyone else have made up. They're, they're words we find in the Bible, and we'll have a look at that. And the Bible makes clear that God chooses or elects these individuals not on the basis of our worth or merit. Uh, it's not like electing or choosing a new politician where you go, well, who will do the best job for me? What are they like? This is not like that uh, and not on our merit because we are all, point one, totally depraved. We're not good. There's not enough good in us to choose God. So we're not being chosen on our merit. There's nothing in us that makes God want to choose one over another, but rather he chooses unconditionally. 
Uh, and again, in our uh, theological terms, we'd call that unconditional election. He, he chooses without condition. It's not, oh, you've done this, therefore I'll choose you. Now, when we hear this idea of God choosing some and not others, you'll probably rise up to the surface this question of, is that fair? Come on. How can God choose some to have eternal life? We're not just talking about you know, having a dessert choosing to have eternal life and others not to. Is, is that fair? That can't be right. Now, remember, we're not here to try and find a teaching that we're comfortable with. That is, a, that is a terrible mistake to say, well, I'm not comfortable with that, therefore it can't be true. We're not here to discover something we're okay with or we can accept. We want to see what the Bible says. And the Bible actually recognises that question. Paul raises it explicitly. Uh, in, in Romans 9, Paul says this, What shall we say then? Is God unjust? How can he choose some and not others? And I'd encourage you to read the context of that. It's the story of Jacob and Esau. And he says, you know, for Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. You know, I've chosen one and I haven't chosen the other. Paul said, what? Is God unjust? Rhetorical question. Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So Paul doesn't solve the question of God being unjust, this accusation, by saying, oh, well, he doesn't actually choose. He leaves it up to them. That, that's not how he solves the problem. He says, is God unjust? No, because God doesn't have to choose anyone. Because we're all sinful. We're all sinful. We, none of us deserve to be saved. And so this is an act of mercy, an act of compassion. It's not something that's been earned. And you can't say, hey, God, that's not fair. I didn't get what I didn't earn. You can't say, that's not fair. I didn't get what I didn't earn. No, no, that is fair when you don't get what you don't earn. Is God unjust? No, because it's mercy. It's compassion. And he's God, he's showing the mercy, he's showing compassion, and he can show it to whomever he will. It's clear that God chooses. Uh, Jesus, in a parable, uh, explaining how you join God's family, and he uses a picture of a wedding feast in Matthew 22, uh, says this, for many are invited, but few are chosen. Or over in Luke, Jesus says this, Luke 22, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Or in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Saying that to the disciples and beyond. Ephesians 1, 4. For he chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He, in love, he predestined us. Predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. You flick down to Ephesians, same chapter, Ephesians 1.11. In him we're also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purposes, with the purpose of his will. We can't avoid these terms. We can't avoid these passages. I'm not cherry picking here. It's not just one vague, hazy passage that may or may not mean that God chooses some and not others. 
It's the only explanation for why some are overwhelmed with his grace and others aren't. Because it certainly wasn't me. It was nothing good in me. It was nothing intelligent in me that was especially good or intelligent that, that made me accept Jesus' kindness and not my brothers, not my friends who've had the same opportunity. There's nothing in me that, that, that made me do that. It's only that God said, Liam, I'm going to overwhelm you. You're so bad you won't choose me on your own. But I'm going to make this irresistible to you. It's a logical explanation and it's the Bible's explanation. Uh, by way of summary, we'll just read out just Ephesians 2, 1. So if you want to read Ephesians 1 and 2 off the back of this sermon, this is a great way to reflect. Ephesians 2, 1, as for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So we're, we're totally bad. We are dead. We're deserving of wrath. We are stuck. There's nothing we can do about it. Verse 4, but because of his greater love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. That's him active, us passive, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved, verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved, undeserved, through faith. And even this faith is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I don't have to explain that. That's, it's, it's all there. Now, the questions we've asked so far and hopefully started to answer, how bad are we? We're totally bad. We're totally bad. There's not enough good in us to naturally choose God. So what then brings us to repentance? Well, it's irresistible grace, overwhelming grace. That's what brings us to repentance. God, in his mercy, overwhelmed our hearts and opened it. Why me? Unconditional election. There's nothing that I did, nothing good about me, nothing beautiful or no merit about me, but because God chose me. So that leads us to our fourth question here. Where can I put my trust? Because if it's up to me, if it ultimately depends on my faith, on my choice, on my intellect, my decisions, my actions, if I am free to just step out of this at some time, then there is no certainty, there is no assurance. Because us humans have a pretty ordinary track record. In, In other religions, they're always asking, have I done enough? Have I done enough prayer? Have I done enough works? Have I done enough giving, enough penance, enough meditation, enough enlightenment? I hope I have. Have I done enough? But for the Christian faith, we can know for certain, we can have assurance because of what Jesus has done. And that's what we call the atonement. 
uh, Jesus' atoning blood. 1 Corinthians 1.22, Paul writes, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified as a stumbling block for the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those to whom God is called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is a power of God and the wisdom of God. This is, this is the cross, the, the cleansing, atoning work of, of, of Jesus. Uh, Ephesians 1.7, Paul writes again, In him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness for our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Uh, that, that word atonement, it, it means not just to cover, not just to cover up sin, but to cleanse. To, to purify. The other words around what Jesus does at the cross are redeem. So the cross pays our penalty. It buys us freedom, cleanses, purifies, ransoms. And it's all been done by Jesus at the cross, all paid in full, which is why Paul can write in Romans 8, so who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies uh, justify, and the way I remember that word, is to say, just as if I'd never sinned. If you've been justified, it was just as if. Just as if you had lived Christ's perfect life. It is just as if we are declared righteous, innocent, deserving to be part of God's family. Who can bring any charge? Because it's not us. It's not me. It's God who has made that declaration. Um, so that means that we can have assurance. Now, today, if, uh, if, if, if you are trusting Jesus, if you're putting your faith in him, if you're repenting, not perfect, but repenting, and as a mark, there'll be visible signs that you are doing, then you, you can have 100% assurance, absolutely 100%, no, no d- doubt that should I die today, I know when I'm getting, what, where I'm going. And uh, Rob's going to come up and reflect on that for just a minute. And uh, Rob did say, hey, there's no kids' church this week, so you can preach as long as you want. <coughs> uh, that's all right. Um, maybe I imagined it, but result is the same. Um, anyway, so this question of assurance for the future, that's the, that's the next one. So I can, I can be confident that today... 100% confident if, if, if there's an accident on the way home and meteor strikes this building, I know where I'm going. I, I'm zero, zero doubt that it's not whether I've done enough or whether I stuffed up yesterday. Um, but what about assurance for the future? Uh, how can I know that in a year, in 10 years, I will still be trusting Jesus? Is it just that, you know, I've prayed the prayer, I've got faith now, And therefore, no matter what I do from here on in, I'm fine. Is is it that? Uh, No matter where I go, I'm saved. Well, the Bible uh, does say that, uh, I don't have a sign for that, we must have persevering faith. There is a condition for our ongoing assurance, assurance that we will reach the end. And the condition is persevering faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 2. Um, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed, had faith, pistuo, pistuo in vain. 
There's a condition there, isn't there? Colossians 1.22, it's not just one off. Uh, Now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through his death to present you whole in his sight without blemish, free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Or Mark 13.13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I think we see this really clearly in the parable of the soils. Uh, We see it there in Luke, uh, where where Jesus tells this great farming story. I always love the farming stories. Um, There's a farmer who goes out to sow his seed. Four different spots the seed lands. Lands on the path, the birds gobble it up. Lands in the rocks, it it sprouts. But then when the soil heats up, and and in the rocks in Israel, there's there's a thin layer of soil, and then there's like a sheet of rock underneath it. So this is picturing a, a shallow bed of soil uh, with rock underneath. So, and that makes sense. So that, that's the first earth in spring to heat up. It's warm, good for germination if there's a bit of moisture. But what happens as the sun continues to shine? Th- this plant which leapt up wilts. Uh, it hasn't got moisture. It's got nowhere for its roots to grow. Uh, and, and, it, and, it, and it dies. It withers. Third seed fell among the weeds, but the weeds grew up and choked it. So it was unfruitful. It did not produce fruit. Fourth seed fell in the good soil, which grew just like the other two, but then there weren't any weeds and there was no rocks, so it produced fruit. Uh, And then in uh, Luke 8, 11, I'll read this bit. Jesus explains it. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed's the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Now that makes me ask, how am I going to do that? How am I going to do that? I can't do that. I'm I'm a chronic failure. I'm a human. I, I can't, I might do well for a little while, but I will always eventually fail. How can I I endure persecutions. How can I resist temptations, worries, riches, and pleasures? I can't. And, and so if, if it's dependent on me and me staying open to God or me you know, just holding on, keep having faith, it won't work. I won't have hope. So, so how, how, how can I have hope? Well, well I think there's, there's hope in the Bible, in the New Testament, where where Paul describes his life, and he describes a life where he did do this. 2 Timothy 4.6, Paul says, I, this is at the end of his life, he's, he describes, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. It's really vivid imagery, isn't it? Just draining into the dust. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I want to say that. Wouldn't that be marvellous to have on your tombstone, set at your funeral with confidence? I want to say that, but how can I? How can anyone hope to be able to say that with confidence? 
Well, there's a secret Paul shares with this in 1 Corinthians. It's that actually God supplied the faith. 1 Corinthians 15:10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And it's his grace to me was not without effect. I worked harder than them all. You know, I, I, I kept the faith. I ran the race. Yet not I. But the grace of God that was in me. He gives credit for that ongoingness, for the, 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 this, this ability to carry on the race. That didn't come from within Paul. He says, yeah, I, I worked hard, but it wasn't me. I ran the race, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God that was in me. It was something that God put in me. And Paul's experience is promised to all who truly follow Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 to 9 say he will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of lord jesus christ god is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son jesus christ our lord or in philippians 1 6 he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of christ jesus he began it he will carry it on romans 8 20 28 and we know that in all things god works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose for those god for those god foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of son of his son so that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters those he predestined he called those he called he justified and those he justified, he glorified. That's the, that's the word for, that he kept them going to glorification till the end, to the end of the life so they end up with him in glory. This promise is the same, is saying that the same one who decisively began your faith, he stepped in and opened your heart. He, he decisively began your faith and he will continue it. Now, when we come to God, God, it's not like God gives us a jump start. It's not like we're broken down in our own old bomb of a car, old bomb of a life on the side of the road. We're dead. God comes along with a battery pack and starts us, and we're sort of coughing and spluttering along the road of life, hoping, hoping. It's not like that. It's not a jump start. He begins and he supplies. We're not on our own. He finishes what he starts. He, he, he gives us assurance here. This is a promise. This is a promise of assurance, like the sign in the butcher, quality assured. You know, that, that's, the, that's a promise of assurance. But the person in the butcher looking at the sausages is going, yeah, I'm not sure. I feel that the quality is assured. So there's a, there's a difference between assurance being stated and being felt, and that's where we're going now. When it comes to the feeling of assurance of salvation, we need to notice that there is a difference between salvation and assurance of salvation. They are different things. Salvation is different to assurance of salvation. So you can be saved and not feel assurance. It's possible to be saved be following Jesus, be trusting Jesus, but not feeling assurance. And it is also possible to feel assurance, to be confident, convinced you're a Christian and you're going to heaven and not be truly saved. In uh, Matthew 7, Jesus makes this really clear. Many will say to me on that day, the day of judgment, 
Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name dry about demons and in your name perform many miracles? These are people who are convinced, who are confident. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So <clears throat> assurance, feeling assurance and assurance of salvation and salvation, two separate things. So let's not get them mixed up. So assurance is not necessary for salvation. If you don't feel assured, that's not a sign that you're not saved, but it is a beautiful treasure. It's a beautiful thing and and we should desire it. I don't want anyone to miss out on this assurance, so we should strive for it. Uh, And how do we get it? We'll flick over to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1 and we'll read a good chunk from here. Uh, and, And you can come back there and read through it and it lays it all out for us. Um, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, is introducing himself to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Already you can see where he's going, isn't he? Not who, who have believed a faith or who have a faith, they've received it. It was given to them. So this is to people who have been given already a faith. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of our God and of Jesus Christ, Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ but whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind forgetting that they've been cleansed from all their past sins therefore my brothers and sisters Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you'll never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So he writes there an instruction that there is a way to confirm, uh, to have a growing conviction of our election that we have indeed been chosen, because that's what it all rests on. If I believe, if I'm convicted, if I'm convinced that God indeed did choose me, predestined me before the foundation of the world, then he will bring me through to glorification. That's the grounds of assurance. And Peter writes, you can confirm that, you can grow in that conviction. Uh, Now, I think the parable of the soils can help with this. Because in the parable of the soils, you have three plants at the beginning who look identical. Uh, So when I pull out soil from my chook pen, uh, it's lovely rich soil. I planted the garden, looks like the rest of the soil. Uh, And I have no way of knowing whether that soil's got weeds in it or not. So, and you plant a plant and it, and it grows up. You've got the three soils. You've got the rocky soil, the weedy soil, and the good soil. They look exactly the same. They all shoot up. They all grow. They're all looking, you know, a little wheat plant, that big. And then the one that's planted in the chook pen soil, 
My chooks have been eating tomatoes and all sorts of other weed and seedy things and they just grow up and they overtake it. But at the beginning, they all looked the same, didn't they? So is there a point at which three lives will look the same? They all receive the word with joy, they all grow, they all believe it. But as time goes on, it begins to become apparent who will persevere. As the hot sun heats up the soil and one of them starts to wilt, as weeds germinate and compete. And over time, over time, it becomes apparent which one will endure till the end, which one will produce, a, will produce fruit. Uh, Paul speaks in a similar way in Romans 8.13. Uh, and he, he talks about it this way of living by the Spirit. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received has brought out your adoption of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So when does the Spirit speak to us, to our spirit, and testify, give us insurance? When we're walking in the Spirit. As we're walking in the Spirit, as we go on. This confirmation by the Spirit, as we're being led by the Spirit. Now I've got some mandarin trees in my backyard. When I bought them, the only thing I could tell, well, that made me think they were a mandarin tree, was the tag. Uh, and they had that glossy citrus leaf. But you, you plant them away and you think, I, I think this is a mandarin tree. And I think it's in good soil. And I hope it will produce fruit. But there's no way of knowing. There's no way of knowing whether it's planted on a big rock just below where I dug, or whether it was actually a lemon tree that was mislabeled. I, I don't know. But as time goes on, as you, you go through a dry patch and forget to water it, as I do, and it doesn't die, ah, maybe it is a good tree. Maybe it is in good soil. And as it goes on and the blossoms come out, you think, okay, well, it's a fruit tree. That's good. And it grows the little green buds. You think, okay, this is this. I'm growing in confidence. I think this is a mandarin tree. I think it is in good soil. And then it goes through summer. And the soil dries out and it's still green. Those little green buds are still growing all through summer. It hasn't dried out. I'm I think this is a good tree. I think this is in good soil. I'm becoming more confident. And then you get the mandarins. It looks like a mandarin. Smells like a mandarin. I'm growing in conference. Now, when I picked that mandarin and ate it, was that the moment that it became a mandarin tree? No. It always was a mandarin tree, but I grew in confidence, in conviction that it was as it endured. And as summer after summer, as it goes through a dry patch and, and survives, I go, I, th I think it's in good soil. Actually, I know it's in good soil. And it's fruited again and again and again. And if it has a year it doesn't fruit, I'm not going to go, oh, no, it's not a mandarin. I've, I've seen it fruiting. I'll prune it and help it out. But I've got a confidence in it now. Now, I, th I think that's helpful in thinking about the way we apply assurance and the way assurance grows. The, the dry seasons are the hard seasons. There's seasons of, pers of perseverance and persecution. And when you've gone through a couple of those, you look back on them and say, God brought me through that. Not I got through that. 
My faith was strong. No, no. God brought me through that, still trusting. I think I am good soil. And as you look around and you start to see fruit being produced in your life, I think I am a, a fruitful tree grafted into Christ. And, and, and that gives a growing conviction, a confirmation of our election. Now, we do need to finish by saying, how do we apply this assurance? Uh, we've got four categories of people we're going to apply it to, how, to, how to think about assurance. If you or someone in your life are these people. Uh, if you're not a Christian, if you think you're a Christian, but you're behaving like a sheep. Uh, if you feel certain and you are behaving like a sheep. And fourth, if you are behaving like a sheep, if you are behaving like a Christian, but you don't feel assurance. So that's where we're heading. First of all, if you're not a Christian, how to apply this doctrine of assurance, this teaching. I want to say, come and get it. That's the application. You can have confidence and eternal security in Christ. You do not have it now. And the only way you can get it is in what Christ has done. No other religion, no other faith can give you that. It is because of what Jesus has done and what he offers. So if you don't love Jesus, if you're not a Christian, you, you can have this. Uh, if, if you think you're a Christian, but you're not behaving like a sheep. I want to flick back to where we started, John 10. Uh, and here's what Jesus says there. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. It's this promise of assurance. Who does he promise it to? Does he promise to the people who identify as a sheep? I'm a sheep. Now he identifies that the, pe the people, the sheep who hear his voice and follow him. So if you say you're a Christian, maybe you got baptized, maybe you used to go to church, but there's, there's not fruit in your life. You don't look like a sheep. If you're not following Jesus actively, then this doctrine of assurance is not for you. You should not be assured. In fact, that's, that, that's the worst thing I could say to you. If, if you're not walking with Jesus, if you're not following him, if there's no fruit in your life, the worst thing I could say is, hey, it's all right, you'll come back. And I'll show you that from Jeremiah. Here's, here's an a, a, a indictment that God gives to the leaders of his people who are doing just that. Jeremiah 6.14 they dressed the wound of my people as though it was not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. I don't want to do that. I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian, do not do that. It's the worst thing you could say to someone you'd love. Who maybe they did look like they were following Jesus and now they, they don't look like they're following Jesus. They don't look like a sheep. The worst thing you could say to them is peace, peace to dress their wound as though it's not serious. Don't be like those shepherds of Israel. They should not have assurance. They need to hear, come back to Jesus. Come to Jesus for the first time. And that's the only way you can have confidence. That's the second way we, should, we shouldn't apply assurance. The third one is if, if you feel and act like a sheep, if you, if you feel, yeah, I, I know this is true and I look at my life and I'm following Jesus, I'm repenting, there's fruit. 
I just want to say, enjoy it. Enjoy it. Celebrate it. That is, that is wonderful. But, but don't be content with that. Uh, that's that Philippians 1 verse 6, who began a good work will complete it. When will Jesus complete the good work in you if he's begun it? When you're 40, 50, 60, 70, 80? No, until the day of Jesus Christ. He's still completing it. He's got more to do in you. So if you feel assured, if you feel certain, if you feel confident in your faith, for good reason, you look at the confirmation in your life. Keep pursuing assurance. Keep pursuing Jesus. Push in. It gets better and will continue to get better right to the end. And, and if you don't feel assurance but are behaving like a sheep, you're actively trusting Jesus, but you don't feel that confidence. Well, I want to tell you a very quick story. Uh, two Jewish men, Bill and Bruce, very Jewish names. Uh, and it's the night before the first Passover. They're in Egypt. Uh, and uh, God, after all those plagues, is about to rescue his people. All the plagues have happened. Uh, now, and, and God says, oh, well, so Bill says to, to Bruce, okay, how, how are you feeling about tonight? How are you feeling about tonight, Bruce? And Bruce says, I'm feeling great. Bill says, oh, I'm a bit nervous. There's been a lot going on around here recently. There's been some scary stuff happening. I'm a bit nervous. Bruce says, well, ha haven't you slaughtered the lamb? Haven't you daubed the post with its blood? Have you prepared the meal? Are you ready to eat the Passover? He says, yeah, yeah I, of course I did all that. I'm not a fool. Of course I did all that. But I'm still nervous. I love my son. And there's been some crazy things going on around here. I'm still nervous. Bruce says, bring it on. I trust in the Lord. That night, the angel of death swept through the land of Egypt. Which man lost their son? Neither. Neither. Because our assurance does not rest on our faith, on, on the, the magnitude or the conviction, but the object of our faith. He put his trust in the promises of the Lord a little trust that acted and God delivered. And that was preparing us for the true Passover. The true Passover lamb, Jesus' blood, is the ground of our assurance. So if you are trusting Jesus, you're behaving like a sheep, you're, you're praying, you're trusting Jesus, but you, you don't feel that assurance I want to encourage you to push into trusting Jesus. Push into trusting Jesus. He will deliver. You might be thinking, I'm not, I'm not fully behaving like a sheep. I could always do better. I'm struggling. Look for history. Think about those seasons in your life where it didn't rain for a while. There was some persecution. And you didn't wither where God brought you through it. Look for the fruit in your life. God, God has produced fruit in your life. So yeah, he's doing his work in me. And push in. And, and the guarantee is that as you push into Jesus, as you look for faith in him, as you put your trust in him, he will provide the faith you need to persevere to the end. 
I'm going to end with the, the end of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. I'm sure there's no questions, so this won't take long. Um, why don't you get Rob's attention and he'll bring the... All right. Bring it over. Here we go. Woody, I'm going to come to you. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm going to re retell it and you tell me if I've got it right. So uh, we have been taught and have practiced that when we're talking to someone who doesn't trust Jesus, we say, hey, you, you make a decision for Jesus. You know, this is how you do it. You, you pray to him, you put your faith in him and he'll, he'll respond. Um, how much of that is valid? Uh, with, with all this, if, if God chooses, if God decisively chooses, how much is that valid? I'd say that that's all valid. Absolutely. We still call people to repent. We still give people the gospel. So God does ho hold out his grace to everyone. I think we see that uh, even the parable of the soils. Uh, he, uh, the application of that parable is not, you work out who the good soil is and only plant your seed there. That's not our job, is to work out what sort of soil someone is. Our job is to give them the gospel uh, and pray like crazy. So if, if prayer wasn't part of that. So, so what do we believe? We believe that um, the Bible says very clearly, no one can come to the Father unless Jesus draws them, unless God opens their heart, unless he removes their spiritual blindness, unless he wakes them from the dead. So what will you do about that? You'll pray. You pray, because God has to do that. The Bible also says you know, you, that we present, be prepared to give an account uh, for the hope that you have at any, any moment. Uh, Paul talks uh, many, many times about uh, preaching in such a way, about being winsome, about arguing, about you know, trying to convince people. We, so we, we, our job is to call people to that and to pray that our Heavenly Father uh, will open their hearts knowing that they cannot do it. Um, now, uh, one of the things I didn't say earlier was um, I've actually got a great little booklet PDF. It's a free ebook. John Piper wrote it on the five five points. It's called, um, and and it runs over this in much greater depth. And he he and I sort of stole a, a bit of this from him. He he talks about um, he, he explains it in the way that we experience it. So the first thing, uh, if you if you're, you are a Christian, the first thing you experience is total depravity. You realise, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I'm depraved. That, that's the first point. That's that. That's the first point of repentance. And then, what do you experience next? Irresistible grace. Wow, this is not only beautiful but irresistible. And then you experience election, in, in a way. Election happened, as, as the Bible tells us, right, before the foundation of the world. So it's not the order it happened, but, and then you go, wow, wow. I've already experienced that I'm a sinner. I've experienced this uh, sense of overwhelming grace. And now I'm discovering that that happened because Jesus um, chose me before that. And it makes sense, because, ah, that's right. This wouldn't have happened unless you, you overwhelmed me. Um, so, uh, yeah, we still evangelise. We still, absolutely, we're told to. We're Bible people. We want to do that. We are the means by which God calls people into his family. 
but he's also working without him working nothing will happen um, yeah. all right that was great uh, we've got another question that's been messaged through a sure vein um, this is a good one for you as a parent to answer <laughs> so how do we teach our children in Christian families that there is a chance they are not chosen mm. that's a big question what do you say to your kids and as you'd answer to the kids, so really simple. Yeah, really, really simple. Um, uh, so, uh, probably depends how it comes up. Um, this uh, caricature, uh, so I want to be very clear, this is a caricature. Sometimes it feels like I have two choices. Either I raise my children as if they're little non-Christians who one day need to make a profession of faith, or I raise my children like they're little Christians and they're in and whatever they do, nothing can change that. And it feels like, you, ah, I've got to choose between the, you know, say, oh, you're not yet a Christian because you haven't believed for yourself. And only when you believe for yourself will you truly be saved. Or, oh, you're in, you're in, you'll always be in, you're in the family. Um, it feels like, but I, think, I don't think you have to split those two things. Um, so... I think the Bible shows us that we, we teach a child in the way she'll go. So um, we, we raise our children to know and love Jesus in the knowledge and love of Jesus. We bring them to church to say, this is what we believe. Uh, I, I, when, when I pray with my kids, I say, we, our Father, we thank you, Lord and Father. Um, but at the same time, uh, what we want to be doing is rem especially uh, reminding them that uh, when they're little, so my kids are young, I don't have all the, <laughs> never going to have all the wisdom on this. Um, I think we want to be encourage them to say, hey, this is something you need to own. God has no grandchildren. Uh, if you're in God's family, it's going to be because you trust Jesus. Um, so if, if Poppy's reading a Bible and she comes to me with that question and says, Dad, uh, I was reading Ephesians. You know, she's 11, I think. I hope I got that right. Um, and, and, and it says, what if I wasn't chosen? What if I wasn't chosen, Dad? I'll say, well, let's, let's read and see, see what else the Bible says. And I'll say, look, I, I, can see, I, can, I can see fruit in your life. I can see the way you're changing. I can see the way you love Jesus. And I want to encourage you to keep pushing into that, keep perse persevering. So take of those same passages that, that we read today. You know, if you carry on to the end. Say, so, yeah, you, you, do you believe now? I'll ask you, do you, do you, is this active? Do you have a living faith? Yeah. Okay. Um, we have this promise that he'll keep us on. So what's the application? Don't sit back and relax. God will, God, no matter, I won't say, no matter what you do, nothing can take away. I won't say, no matter what you do, you're always saved. Because that's just going to set her up um, to, to be able to say, oh, I can, I can grow up, walk away from Jesus, and just hang on to my baptism certificate, or whenever it is she gets baptised, I was saved. So keep pushing in, keep pushing in, keep pushing in. So it's um, a trap, isn't it, with particularly, I'm a long way away from it, but the, the adult kids who... Uh, that, that one that you talked about, the not acting like sheep. Yeah. We, we want to be really careful to not give them assurance yeah. that they don't have it. Don, Don Carson was really helpful for me on this. So he talks about, um, uh, you yeah, know, if, so the hypothetical, or, and it's not just hypothetical, the person who seems to truly believe and have faith and then walks away and there's no fruit, there's no evidence, and then comes back. 
That's the dream for all the parents and those who love someone who's walked away. We're, we're praying they'll come back. And, and that person, when we say, okay, we've got two options. Either, one John, they were never one of us. They, they were never truly saved. They seem to have faith, the sort of faith that we see in John come up, but it's not true faith. It is a faith, but it's not saving faith. And so they were actually never truly converted. Then they were only truly converted here. That's a possibility. Or they did have a true faith here. And they went through a long summer where they, they wilted and, and it looked like they were dying or dead and God brought them back. And we will never know which one it was. Uh, Don says, uh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God. Uh, was I converted at six and then walked away and came back at uni? Or was I only truly converted at uni? When, God, was I saved? He'll say, when I chose you. He said, he said he'd say, before the foundation of the world. Uh, so uh, we'll find that out in heaven. We can't, we can't know that. Now. All right, yeah. we'll, we'll roll on. Uh, it looks like there's a question here. There's a couple of questions. I'll start with you, George, and then... You were talking about predestined. Mm. Uh, are you saying that the, the question, uh, once saved, always same, are they same, are they same or are they different? So, so the question is, uh, I mentioned the word predestined. Uh, could, could you uh, rephrase that as once saved, always saved? Is that? saying once saved always saved are you saying that people say once saved always saved that they can't be lost are you saying that Thank, thanks George I think I understand the question um, uh, so there is a phrase a slogan going around once saved always saved I think that's a really unhelpful phrase uh, and I think it's unhelpful one because we, we don't find it in the Bible we do find the word predestined um, so what we can say is those who who God chooses well, Romans, Romans 8, God, God knows who he foreknew, he predestined, he justified, and he glorified. It's given in the past tense, but it's a future action. It, it's certain. So anyone that God has predestined, or he has chosen, or he has before the foundation of the world, written their name in the Lamb's Book of Life, it's all, all that same. All the people who God has earmarked to be his will experience grace, will repent, uh, will be justified by Christ, and will carry on through the rest of their life. Now, the reason that I don't say that that is the same as once saved, always saved, is because our experience of that can be fickle and hard to measure. So we might think, yeah, I'm saved, like those people in, was it Matthew 7, the ones who said, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name. They would say, that if you ask those people, are you saved? They'd say, yep. But they're not truly saved, are they? So that's why I say, so they would say, I'm saved, and no matter what I do, I can't, I, I can't fall away from God. No, no, that, that, that's not what the Bible teaches. There's this very clear um, requirement for persevering faith, faith with, which endures to the end, which produces fruit, which you can see. And if it's not there, that there's no confidence. So I, I, I don't want to use the term once saved, always saved. I think it's unhelpful. Uh, but I do want to say all those God has predestined, he will justify and he will glorify. So, sorry, I can't give you a, in, a straighter answer than that, but yeah. Thank you very much. Yep. All right, I think Lynette. Yeah. You know, uh, the question, I wasn't mm. chosen, 
what do you think of the verse in John 15 where it says, um, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, that yep. you should go and bear fruit, okay? And another verse in one of the letters of John where it says, he who has the Son, the Son of God, has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. Mm. So it's very, very plain. So um, what I'm going to say is with the assurance of salvation, do we have faith? Because faith is not feelings, is it? No. Um, so let's, let's, let's step, step the, I, I don't want to get too muddled up. No, back, stay back there, Rob. I need to make sure uh, we've got the question. Um, what, what's the question? Because so we haven't had a question yet. Well, the question was, I have, the kid said, I, I'm not chosen. What about the verse where it says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you? Mm. So would you actually say, we are all chosen? No, I, I can say, no, no, no I wouldn't say that because cause I can't, because we, we, if, if there is, so when we say all, we can't say, well, is the whole world chosen? No, 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 the whole world is not chosen. There are some who are chosen, who are elected, who are predestined before the foundation of the world. They are chosen. So we, we can't say we're all chosen, um, broadly, of all people. Um, uh, but I can say, I, I look in you and it, it looks like you have been chosen. I can see that. I have, I have no reason to doubt that you have been. So, so carry on. But I, I wouldn't want to say when they say, because I, I, haven't, I haven't seen perseverance in my kids' lives yet. I, I just haven't seen that. Uh, and they're really young. We know children reach, um, you know, around 12, uh, that age of where, where they stop usually identifying with their parents and start identifying with their peers. And that's a big, often there's a few big moments in life where you go, well, is, what, who am I? What am I going to believe? Which, you know, what sort of person am I going to be in a worldly sense? But often that coincides with, with Christian faith as well. Will, will I take this faith of my family and carry it on? And I don't want to say when they're little, yeah, absolutely, you are chosen and nothing can take that away from you. I don't know that. I, I can't look around and say, yep, you're a good soul, you're a good soul, you're a bad soul, you're a bad soul. I, I, I can't look and see that. Um, but we can, as life goes on and we see perseverance, as we see fruit, we can have a growing conviction in ourselves. And I think in others, although we just have to be so much more careful when doing an assessment on others. Even doing an assessment on ourselves, we've seen from that Matthew 7 is... is fraught because you might do a wrong assessment on yourself oh I'm, I'm with you Jesus and Jesus says no you did you did a dodgy assessment on your heart and it is extra dangerous to look at someone else and say yep you are you are definitely in what I can say is hey keep persevering keep pushing into Jesus and child whatever age they are um, it depends. Uh, different kids will be different different times. When all my kids are... One of my great prayers is not just that all my kids would be Christian, but they would be so... It would be so evident in their life when they're 60. They'll be 60, I'll be in my, I don't know, 80s. And it will be so evident in my life that all my four daughters... Uh, that, that I, I won't have a doubt. And I'll look at, their, look at how they're living and their perseverance and their fruit. 
and, and there won't be a, oh, you know, I know they're saying they're Christians, but they're not really going to church, and they're not really following Jesus, and I'm not seeing fruit in their life. I don't I want, I want that assurance. But, but again, I, I think we need to be really careful not to overstep the mark and not to understep the mark. So uh, I, don't, I don't know what's going on in people's hearts who've, who aren't producing fruit, who aren't living a visible Christian life. And I don't know whether God has chosen someone before the foundation of the world. Uh, but what I can see, what I can see, is fruit. So if Rob says to me, He's not a child, but if he says to me, "Ah, oh, Liam, I'm, I'm having doubts. I'm not quite sure. Do you think? Do you think I'm chosen?" Okay. Well, I'm not God. I don't know. But, but I can see fruit in your life. We've been friends long enough. I've watched you follow Jesus through really dry seasons that prove that you have deep roots. And I have every, I have no reason to doubt that you were not chosen before the foundation of the world. So push on, persevere, because Jesus will will give, will give you the faith. If you push into Him, He will give you the faith you need. So I, I can say that of Rob, in a way that I can't say it of a brand new Christian who has just walked up the front at a you know a conference or something, and I've never met them. I say that that's great. You keep persevering. He will keep you to the end. I can say that to them, but I, I can't point back to the confirmation of their faith yet. Yeah. I'll just a comment on that. Um, if somebody was genuinely um, worried that they weren't chosen, mm. couldn't you just uh, say, prove it? Uh, you, so couldn't you just say, prove it? Hang on there, Rob. Um, uh, what, what test would would we want to apply to that? Have you got anything in mind? You can't. Yeah. How, how can you, you haven't been chosen? Yeah. So um, yeah, I, we we can't say. But what we can do is we can. So we have, especially through the epistles and through Hebrews, uh, and James is a big one to say, if there is no fruit, there is no faith. James really clearly says, that, you know. Yeah, we're saved by faith alone, and there will always be evidence of that faith. So in a, in a way, that you can be proved. So if someone says, oh, I, it depends on the person. If, if, if it's someone who, um, they're not devoted to the family of believers, they're greedy, they're cheating, they're angry, and they're saying, yeah, I'm saved. I'm I'll go, oh, I, I, I'm going to do everything I can to take away that person's assurance. I don't want to treat their wound as though it were not serious. But I can't say with absolute, I can't say whether they're chosen or not. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's all on my way. All right. Needs to be recorded. Uh, there was that verse that you read out that was about the Holy, how the Holy Spirit in us, who are Christians, that the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit mm -hmm. uh, that we're in him. Does, does that give us, a when we're just assessing ourselves, yep. I guess a degree of certainty that like, oh, the Holy Spirit is in me, testifying to my spirit that, yeah, I, I am part of his family. Um, th does that push us into like that kind of place of certainty about ourselves? Or is that just like, a, I guess, a, another bit of evidence or confidence? Mm. Um, yeah, thanks, Nate. So does the Holy Spirit's testifying to our spirit. So that's Romans 8, 13 and following, if you want to look that one up. 
does that give some level of certainty in yourself? Um, again, I'd just encourage us to read the whole chapter, and that's that's the danger of topical sermons where you read. So it, it's in the context of walking in the Spirit. We can't pull out uh, a verse. The Holy Spirit testifies that you are adopted as sons, and then say, "Well, I feel like I'm adopted as a son." Regardless of how I'm walking, regardless of how I'm living, regardless if there is any evidence, what would the Bible would the Bible say? Any fruit of the Spirit? I don't think it says that, doesn't it? Fruit of the Spirit, that, that's the evidence of the Spirit. Um, so if you're walking in the Spirit, if you're producing, that, that, that's the context of this, that there, there is evidence there as well. And, and Paul assumes they go hand in hand. Um, that, that, that they go together. So, so yes, absolutely, you're going to get that inner testifying for the Holy Spirit as you're walking in the Spirit. But we also have another context, Matthew 7, where someone will feel innerly confident, but it's not a spiritual thing. And so you, you've got to test. You know, it's it's got to be going hand in hand. We've got to read these passages in their context. We're going down to Carabot. We might make it the last. Lucky we're not waiting for kids' church teachers. Yeah, talking about predestination, mm. um, does that mean that the people, you said not everyone's predestined. Mm. Does that mean that you're wasting your time praying for other people because their heart might be hardened or... You know, is it a waste of time because they might not be chosen? That's a huge and fantastic question, Carol. Um, so where the Bible speaks, yeah, and, and I, I guess I want to say it's not my word. I want to defend the Bible's word. It's the, the Bible's word is predestination. Your question is if, if someone hasn't been chosen, hasn't been predestined, am I wasting my time praying for them because their heart won't be opened? Uh, you'd say, are you wasting your time witnessing to them, investing in them, you know, all, all those things. Um, I, I want to say it's, it's, it's not, re well, it's, it's not a matter of that. It's, it's in a way, it's, the, it's just the right question, but it's not one that we, in a way, should be asking because God says this, this is one of the marks of a faithful follower of Jesus. So really clear that if you, if you truly love Jesus, you will be desperately concerned for those you know and love to come to him too. And, yeah, and, we're, and we're told to pray. The Father delights in our prayers being, in, in us praying. Um, so I want to say it's, it's never a waste of time because, one, first of all, prayer is relational. Prayer is relational. So I don't know, if I, if I come and have a cup of tea with you, Carol, and my angle is that, I don't know, I want you to lend me your lawnmower, um, and I, we have a cup of tea and we have a lovely conversation, and you say, oh, sorry, you can't have my lawnmower today. Was that a waste of time? No, we've had a, we, we, we've had a relational conversation. We've invested in each other. That's really good. I didn't get the lawnmower. That's okay. Um, prayer is at its fundamentally... Um, between a Christian and that Christian's father who's adopted them. So prayer is a never a waste of time. Um, and nor there is evangelism because we're, we're told we're, we're being obedient. And we're, do, we're witnessing by evangelizing. By evangelizing. Um, having said all that, the question really asking, will someone come to faith if 
if God has not chosen them? And the answer is no, because they are dead in their sins. They're, they're in bondage, they're slaves, and they, they won't come to faith unless God does that miracle in them. We don't know who they are, and God delights to hear our prayers. And so let's, let's pray like crazy for those people. Yeah. I might uh, recommend a, a book that I find myself recommending often on that question. So Evangelism yeah. and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. Really great read to kind of wrap your head around that. Mm. Um, I've got a copy. So if you want to borrow it, uh, and Liam's got one too, you can have his copy. Uh, so feel free to grab that off him.